ETF Prime is hosted by Nature Racing, president of investment advisory firm, the ETF Store. This program is for informational purposes only and does not constitute investment advice. Investing in ETFs involves risk, including potential loss of principal. Any past performance figures discussed are not necessarily indicative of future results. The ETF store is not affiliated with Vetify or any of its affiliates. Vetify's participation in this program should not be construed as an endorsement or indication by Vetify of the value of any ETF store product or service. Visit ETFstore.com for more information. This week's episode is brought to you by Goldman Sachs Asset Management ETFs. Smart investments made simple. Learn more at gsam.com slash ETFs. Alps Distributors, Inc. is the distributor of the Goldman Sachs ETF funds. Now it's time for ETF Prime, where we discuss everything you need to know about exchange-traded funds and the world of investing. Whether you're an investing expert or just starting out, Nate will help you get up to date with what's happening on Wall Street and show you how exchange-traded funds can help lower your investment costs, reduce your tax bill, and allow you to take advantage of investment opportunities around the world. And now, the host of ETF Prime, Nate Geraci. All right, joining me this week will be Elizabeth Tashner, Director of Global Funds Research at FactSet, who's a leading provider of financial data and analytics. And I said this last week, Elizabeth is absolutely in the pantheon of ETF nerds. Uh, she covers the ETF space as well as anyone, anywhere. And she is just out with two fantastic pieces on uh, what I would say are separate but related topics. So first, she dug into ETF flows in the first half of the year. And when I say dug in, I'm not sure many people get into the uh, level of detail that Elizabeth does. Uh, she dug pretty deep here and has some very interesting takeaways on where ETF investors are allocating money in 2022. And then she followed that up with an in-depth piece on the current ETF fee landscape. And we'll talk more about this, but I feel like the entire ETF fee discussion has gotten a bit lost in the shuffle. So I think some people have become uh, fatigued on this topic. And on, on one hand, I get that. I think there was just so much focus placed on ETF fee competition over the years that there was almost a uh, backlash. There was just so much emphasis placed on cost and maybe not enough on what an ETF actually does, right? The the underlying investment strategy. And I, I think some people just got tired of this discussion. But the bottom line is Elizabeth has some great data that I think shows even if everyone is fatigued on talking about fees, they're certainly paying attention when putting money to work in ETFs, which that's actually what ties Elizabeth's two pieces together, by the way, uh, when you talk about where flows are going in the ETF world. Uh, even if investors are shifting from, say, growth stocks to value stocks or from tech to energy or whatever, they're still paying attention to fees. So I'll get into all of this and much more with Elizabeth here in just a bit. Now, to start this week, I have Vetify's Tom Hendrickson on the line with me. Tom is Chief Product and Innovation Officer at Vetify, and this is going to be a lot of fun. We have the top 10 ETFs this year in terms of engagement on the Vetify platform. So we're going to count those down for you right now. 
Now we're joined by the experts at Vetify, a new data analytics and thought leadership company that is transforming financial services from an industry to a community, one relationship at a time. We can deliver value to that advisor because that's what they're telling that they want to engage in. We want to make sure that we're putting the right pieces of content in front of them at the right time. Tom, welcome back to the podcast. Good morning, Nate. How are you? I'm doing fantastic. How about yourself? I'm doing well, thank you. Well, look, I'm uh, I'm really looking forward to this because we periodically like to look at which ETFs are seeing the most engagement on the Vetify platform. And very simply, these are the ETFs that are most researched when people visit ETFtrends.com and ETFDB.com. Uh, th- there are no frills here, right? These are literally just the top 10 ETFs researched in the uh, the first half of the year. Now, as always, I have the uh, list in hand, and I'm going to do the old David Letterman reverse countdown, starting with number 10, which, by the way, were you a, uh, a David Letterman uh, fan back in the day? Did you watch him? Yeah, I toggled, I toggled between Leno and Letterman. Uh, liked them both, uh, and, and even like the new Netflix series with Letterman that he's uh, kind of taken a, a more intimate approach to his interviewing. So, yeah, I'm, I'm a fan. Didn't you have to be uh, one fan or the other, either Leno or Letterman? I didn't realize you could like both. That know. feels like the Yankees and the Mets, like like your fans of both of those teams. <laughs> I think it's cats and dogs. I think you can like both, <laughs> Nate. I think that, that with, with late-night television, you can straddle both, both of those lines. I always think uh, David Letterman just reminds me of the uh, the 90s. I just feel like that was the uh, the golden period, right? Uh, just with a guest he had on, and that was really when he was in his prime. So in any event, I uh, digress. So look, let, let's get to this list, and uh, I'll start with number 10. And I, I've got to tell you, Tom, I'm a little surprised by this one, uh, but you know, as I thought more about it, I guess it, it makes sense to some degree. And that's the ARK Innovation ETF, ticker ARKK. And I guess I'm surprised just because this thing is down like 52% year to date. But on the other hand, it's also Kathy Wood, right? And you think about the following that she's built. I think this shows she's not going anywhere. I, I, I think that this shows she's here to stay despite the performance. What, what did you think about this one? Yeah, so so Nate, maybe just before diving into ARKK, which is number ten on our list, uh, just to level set a little bit, uh, you, you teed it up really well at the start of the show. But one of the things that we're doing at Vetify, and honestly, one of the most interesting and unique aspects of of the data and analytics company that we're building is uh, the accessibility and the the mountain of data that we're sitting on. And there's a lot of different ways that we can slice and dice that data. Uh, you know, both through the lens of specific types of users like investment advisors or even specific types of advisors like an RAA versus a, a broker-dealer. Um, but what this data set is is a little different than some of the data, you know, we've discussed and batted around on previous ETF primes. Um, so this is the first six months of 2022, and this is actually the explicit search volume. So when someone, uh, uh, when any user, not specifically or only an advisor, when any of the users on the Betify platform, so on the URLs, etfdb.com or etftrends.com, when they're actually explicitly entering a search. So that it, it's a really high level of intent when someone does that. It's not just a, a interaction with a page that has this ticker or reading an article that features ARKK or any of these other nine tickers that we're going to talk about, it really is um, this user saying, I want to learn more about this ETF, and I'm going to be explicit about finding it on the Vetify platform. So <clears throat> with that said, 
your point is your your point's right. You know, so I think that um, ARKK is is both interesting and and some somewhat perplexing because of the performance story. But as investors and advisors embrace the Kathy Wood strategy and and are really leaning into sort of this innovative growth theme, um, it, it's showing the staying power. And she's she's built a brand and she's built a strategy where she's done a, a fantastic job with the team of analysts that she has educating uh you know the market about the strategy and and ultimately we're seeing that um if you are a long-term believer in it uh this could be an opportunity for you to uh reduce your cost basis so uh that's number 10 on the list yeah and i think it's been pretty well documented this year but you look at arkk it's taken in over one and a half billion dollars despite the the performance and i've said before i think investors they like this fund because they know exactly what they're getting here. They're, they're getting disruptive tech stocks. And for better or worse, Kathy has not veered from her strategy, right? And because of that, I think ARK investors can count on what she's going to deliver. It's something that traders can count on. So I think that's one audience, people who are wanting to play a bottom in uh, disruptive tech stocks. I think it's something that obviously, uh, you know, hardcore Kathy with loyalists, longer term investors in her strategy can count on. And, and honestly, Tom, it's something that short sellers can count on, that if they want to short the space, they know that they're shorting disruptive tech stocks. So it's a little bit ironic, but I think Kathy sticking with her approach was the best thing she could have done, even though, again, the performance has been uh, been challenged. So interesting uh, ETF to start the list. All right, the next two ETFs, and I'm going to combine these because they're in the same broad category. So number nine, is the Invesco Optimum Yield Diversified Commodity Strategy, no K-1 ETF, ticker PDBC. And number eight is the Invesco DB Agriculture Fund, ticker DBA. And, of course, commodities have been perhaps the biggest story in the markets this year. And while it's been a uh, a tough last two months, there, there has been a pullback. If you look at an ETF like uh, PDBC, that's still up nearly 25% on the year. And you may have seen this uh I think it was on Sunday, I tweeted out the performance of, of most of the major asset classes that are out there. Commodities top the list, and it's not even close, uh, just far and away the top performer. But any thoughts on uh, either of these ETFs? Yeah, no, I think they, the, the biggest thing with number eight and number nine on our list here, PDBC, as you mentioned, and, and DBA, both uh, commodities-related exposures, it, this is reflective and emblematic of the fact that uh, the market environment in the first half of 2022 is, is really very starkly and, and different than it was in 2021 or, or in 2020. And, and this is the reflection of something that we hear all the time through our survey data with specifically with, with the advisor community is that inflation and rising rates are one of the biggest concerns and, and how to uh, counteract any of the uh, effects or or negative uh, headwinds that those can provide in a portfolio. And I think that, the, you know, people looking at these options as ways of potentially doing that is certainly, um, you know, reflected here in the data where PDBC and DBA, for example, weren't even on the top 25 of, of top tickers when you look and compare this data to a year prior, so the first half of 2021. So to me, it just, you know, it's a sense of the market environment that we're in and how investors are looking to uh, mitigate the risks that are of top of mind for them. Yeah, and again, you look at uh, inflows here, these ones make sense. I mean, PDBC has about $3 billion in inflows uh, so far in 2022. DBA, about $850 million. Pretty good. I do think one of the 
interesting questions here, and I've thought a lot about this, is how advisors approach commodities. And, you know, you look back, so I ran a chart, this this was about a, a week or two ago, I ran uh, a chart of DBC, which is the Invesco DB commodity ETF. Uh, this one generates a K1. L- listen to this, Tom. If you go back, so this the inception of this ETF was 2006. You know what the total return is through uh, like a week ago? It was about 15%, like total. Mm-hmm. That was the total return. And I, I think what that shows is, uh, you know, commodities can be a tough place to to be in over the long term. And so I think advisors have a decision to make. Do you want to take a strategic allocation to commodities or is this something that should be played much more uh, tactically? I think there's a lot of debate out there. Uh, you know, I think uh, there's a there's a growing camp that would say commodities are the perfect uh, area to uh, to trend follow. Right. And, and you follow the trend, get in and out, depending upon whatever metrics you want to use. But uh, I think this will be interesting to watch going forward, because if we continue to see inflation and you have more investors gravitating towards commodities, is this something that they're going to hang with over the long term or is this going to be a tactical play? I, I think it'll be fascinating well, to watch. You're 100 percent right, Nate. It's, 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 it is a bit of an age old debate. Like it does do commodities uh, deserve and earn a position as a strategic long term allocation in an advisor portfolio. I think that that's, um, you know, a topic worthy of debate. The other you know thing to highlight here is that this is not only advisor research. So certainly when you look at retail investors or DIY folks running money on their own. Um, the tactical effects are probably coming in here, and, and there is and can be a little bit of a performance-chasing uh, element. And you look at the, the top 10 list here, the only thing that is really in the green are these two funds versus all of the other eight where year-to-date uh, we see a sea of red. So I think that that's the other thing to highlight there as well. No, that's a good point. I actually saw uh, Vetify. You had a piece yesterday on energy ETFs where – Really, the gist of the piece is that there have been outflows from energy ETFs overall. But uh, if you look at retail-specific flows, so this was data from Vanda uh, Research, it actually showed that retail was moving into energy ETFs over the past couple of months. I mentioned that there had been a fairly pronounced downturn here recently. So to your point, there there can be some differences here between the retail community and then you know, sort of the advisor and then moving up to the institutional uh, investor. Um, okay. I think the next ETF on the list is uh, definitely going to surprise some people. It's the ProShares Ultra Pro QQQ ETF, ticker TQQQ. So this provides three times daily leverage exposure to the NASDAQ 100. But (laughs) here's a kicker, and I'm actually going to discuss this topic with uh, Elizabeth Kashner later. This ETF is down over 60% year-to-date. Yet it's taken in nearly nine billion in inflows. I, I mean, you talk about lighting money on fire. <laughs> I, I guess again, I mean, do you think advisors are using this, or do you think this is all uh, retail? Yeah. So, so Nate, it's it's a little bit of a mixture, I think. Uh, but certainly, uh, the retail audience would be more highly engaged in a product like this. And and I'm, uh, you know, certainly not an advisor myself. So I'm I'm trying to study and analyze this data and. and you know, glean some insight from it. So like to your point, I, I, what surprised me was the size of this fund. So we're talking about a fund that has over $13 billion in assets, gives daily 3x exposure to uh, the NASDAQ 100. And so, you know, I think that the biggest thing that I'd want to emphasize and ensure that the audience understands is that whenever we talk about these, these leverage or inverse products, 
the way that they're constructed is to provide the daily exposure. And, and that's really, really important, especially for the retail audience. Sometimes they can um, think or, or feel that this is a longer term 3X leverage product, but it, it's not. And so, you know, to me, looking under the hood, understanding what this is going to do, uh, if there's a, a small allocation where you feel that that's going to be uh, helpful to the overall portfolio, just know what you're buying and understand how these products work, uh, especially products where we're seeing as much interest as we are, both through the engagement, number seven on our list across the Vetify platform, but also uh, in the flows, the $9 billion that you point to that has taken the fund over $13 billion in total. You are absolutely speaking my language. I mean, people have to understand how these ETFs work and you know, effectively, the more leverage you have and then the more volatility of the underlying uh, asset that you're tracking, the more uh, decay you're going to have over time, the, the, the bigger deviation you're going to have in returns from maybe what you're expecting. And, you know, you talk about retail. I'm not sure if you saw this. The, uh, the, the Wall Street Journal, they had an article over the weekend where they were talking about how retail traders are buying the dip in uh, tech stocks. And they noted that in July, that actually had the highest level of purchases by individual investors of a, uh, a popular basket of tech stocks. So this included like Fang and Microsoft, Tesla. But uh, the, the highest level of purchases since at least 2014. And uh, again, this was data from uh, Vanda Research. But he, here's the thing. They, uh, they also had a list of the top securities purchased by individual investors this year. And TQQQ was number four on the list. So this includes literally all stocks and ETFs. This TQQQ was number four overall from retail investors. That's pretty mind blowing. And, you know, again, Tom, to your point, I hope, uh, you know, people are, are doing their homework to understand how these products work. Um, okay. Well, no, ab- go ahead. Yeah. Absolutely, Nate. Well, yeah. So I was just going to say that's actually a, a perfect segue into number six on the list, which which is we actually started to see, and, and I did see that Wall Street Journal piece, which is a great piece. People should check it out. Uh, we started to see some of that sort of dip buying enthusiasm or research pop up on our list, and number six is is the Vanguard uh, Information Technology ETF ticker VGT, and so. To your point, you know, some of the names like uh, Microsoft, Apple, NVIDIA, Visa, Cisco, you know, kind of uh, sprinkled in the all top 10 holdings. So people are certainly looking at what's going on in, in some of these broad major market indices like the NASDAQ 100 and thinking, um, you know, down over 20 percent kind of year to date sort of thing. And, and at times down even upwards of 30. And, you know, how do they how do they play that rebound or potential recovery in, in those areas, knowing that they had, you know, between the decade of 2010 to 2020, um, you know, just phenomenal returns and, and maybe thinking that there may be a bit of a boomerang effect there and, and, and that they're going to snap back. And so we saw that on number six on the list. I don't know what you read in the BGT, the Vanguard Information Technology, but, but that struck me as interesting as related to TQQQ and then also, you know, uh, investors and advisors doing some of the the dip buying uh, research. Yeah, I mean, the dip buying aspect definitely jumped out at me. But the other thing that I guess caught my attention was that it was the Vanguard tech ETF. I mean, you think about some of the other technology ETFs that are out there. I thought it was noteworthy that Vanguard popped up on your list. Yeah, well, you know, and it speaks to the brand. They've done just a phenomenal, you know, phenomenal job there. And, and I know that you and Todd uh, Rosenbluth, my colleague, uh, even last week touched on this. Is it's a bit of a machine, and and you know, people who are on the platform and and embrace the the products is uh, you know they're they're probably more likely to 
buy a Vanguard product than, than a competitive product once they've got those as anchors in their portfolio. So it's probably a little bit of, of seeing that. And uh, the team there does a great job educating their user base and, and the long-term nature of their holdings and all of those types of things. So that's probably playing into it as well. All right, so let's uh, unveil the uh, top five here now. So number five on the list is the Energy Select Sector Spider Fund, ticker XLE. Look, this one doesn't surprise me at all. I mean, you're talking about the top performing sector this year with energy. Though the one thing I'll add here is, you, you look at the CTF, it's actually had outflows this year, which I found, which I found uh, you know, interesting just given how well this thing has performed. But any uh, quick thoughts on XLE? Yeah, really quick. Two things stood out to me, Nate, and again, just to you know, compare and contrast to this data set versus the one from 2021. Interestingly enough, so XLE sits in the number five position for year 2022, the year we're talking about. I looked at the data for 2021, and it was actually ICLN, iClean, and iShares Clean Energy ETF. Mm. And so I think that we're seeing um, this is reflecting a little bit of um, – you know, the market behavior and investor behavior where there, there's a, a, an ongoing debate about how to gain exposure to energy in general. And, and is there more of the transition element and a clean element, or is there more of a traditional exposure because that has performed quite well, as you mentioned, in year uh, 2022. So that, that stood out to me. The other point about, um, you know, the outflows is I think that, you know, in the entire sector suite, one of the things that the ETF industry has done as a whole is provide access in ways that you know, sort of deconstruct or, or provide even more granular exposures underneath um, sort of the sector level. And, and you, know, you see that in a lot of the thematic products that have come out. So there's just so many more options for investors and advisors to get these types of exposures with differing varies of granularity. And I think that that's um, also probably playing into uh, you know, some of the numbers that we're seeing here. Yeah, I'll just add here, if you look at the performance, so XLE believe it or not, was up nearly 70% for the year back in June. Now it's up around 40% or so. So you can see the pullback there. But in terms of the outflows, I, th- I think my take is, is I thought about this was just that I wonder if the sector spiders are used much more as trading tools, right? And and so, you know, you see flows kind of come and go and, and probably here recently go. And then I think the other thing, too, is just because energy had been pretty much dead money for so long, I, I wonder if longer-term investors just aren't believers yet, right? That maybe they want to see more out of this space before uh, committing for the long haul. That was kind of the best I could come up with on the, uh, on the, on the outflows there. Um, Well, I think, I think you're right, Nate, on on the margin probably, but you know, actually is still a north of a $35 billion fund. So probably some of the the tactical more uh, trader related flows are are in and out, but there's certainly a, a, you know, a long, um, you know, base of assets within that fund. So it's probably a little bit of both. All right. So the remaining four ETFs, I'm going to do something a little bit different here, Tom, but hopefully this will make sense. So I think, as you know, usually I try to build some suspense and do these one at a time, as I mentioned, Letterman style, but I'm going to give these all out at once because I think the talking points on these last four ETFs are actually pretty similar. So if you don't mind, let me give those uh, those top four, and then I'd love to hear your your comments. And Honestly, even if I wanted to try and build some suspense, I think this would probably be somewhat anticlimactic given the uh, ETFs. But let, let me toss these out. So number four on the list is the Vanguard Total Stock Market ETF, ticker VTI. Of course, this offers exposure to basically the entire U.S. stock market for three basis points, by the way. Uh, number three and number two on the list 
are two S&P 500 ETFs. So the Vanguard S&P 500 ETF, ticker VOO, and the Spider S&P 500 ETF, uh, SPY. And then big drum roll, number one on the list. This is the top ETF in terms of engagement on the Vetify platform so far this year. QQQ, the Invesco QQQ Trust, which, of course, holds the NASDAQ 100 stock. So, Tom, these last four ETFs, I mean, you think about this. These all tend to be core building blocks in a portfolio. These are four of the five largest ETFs that are out there. I guess I'll just put this back on you. I mean, what does this say about uh, Vetify's users that these were uh, the top four ETFs in terms of engagement this year? Yeah, Nate. So a couple of things jump out at me is, is uh, you're pointing out something that's really, really important. And ultimately, the, these core building blocks of you know being highly researched, I think it, it speaks to a sophisticated user base who understands that, well, sometimes, you know, media and others like to talk about sort of the, the hot sauce or hot dot uh, strategies and, and that sort of thing that may comprise a satellite or non-core position with the portfolio. Um, you know, get a lot of the attention at the end of the day. I love your saying, Nate, where the best portfolio for an investor is one that they can stick with um, because ultimately that's going to be, uh, you know, deliver the long-term kind of nature of what they're looking for in terms of exposure and, and, and their ability to ride any emotional kind of roller coaster up and down. And, and so these four ETFs to me talk to the sophisticated uh, user base across Vetify and then also speak to the disciplined approach of, of really putting those core uh, building blocks at, at front and center. And, and the other thing to, to point out here is that, you know, so uh, another S&P exposure, IBB, didn't crack the top 10. It was just outside. But, you know, just the thing that was striking to me is as you, as you look at those three S&P 500 exposures, SPY, VOO, and, and, and IBB, uh, nearly a trillion dollars in assets in total. And, and so, you know, just it also was interesting to me to think about where we've come as an industry and, and how this this delivery mechanism and the ETF technology and wrapper is just being so widely embraced with three products comprising nearly a trillion dollars in assets that are anchoring a lot of portfolios as, as a real true core position of, of long-term um, you know, U.S.-based uh, equity exposure. So that that was, you know, those two things were, were jumped off the page for me. No, I think that's well said. IBV jumped off the page at me as well, just not being on that list, given that it, it is one of the top ETFs by inflows this year. Uh, I'm showing nearly $16 billion into IBV. Well, SPY has lost about $25 billion. Uh, but, what, you know, I think what you said makes perfect sense. I'll also note, with these S&P 500 ETFs, don't forget about uh, SPLG, right? The uh, What I call mini SPY. So, you know, it's the uh, the State Street uh, version that is only three basis points. That has about $15 billion in it, so much smaller, but I, I think is uh, is growing pretty well. But I guess I'll just sum this up. As I thought about all the ETFs on this list, I think what you said was perfect. You look at these top four, these are core holdings, and then you look at the other ETFs we covered. So XLE, uh, VGT, uh, TQQQ, which I'll, I'll maybe set that one aside a little bit, but certainly DBA, PDBC, and ARKK. That's all the uh, the spice in a portfolio, right? That's Those are satellite positions. So you have kind of the core and explore here. And I think that fits really well with what advisors are, are looking to do and really investors as a whole. So I, I think good list, Tom. We're going to have to leave it there. Fun stuff. You know, I love going through uh, this type of data. It's just such a great window into what advisors and investors are doing. But uh, thank you for joining me this week. Thanks, Nate. Have a great day. That was Tom Hendrickson, Chief Product and Innovation Officer at Vetify.
And now a word from iShares. The shift to a low-carbon economy is changing the way people invest. iShares sustainable ETFs help you position your portfolio to manage sustainability-related opportunities and risks, such as climate change. Get your share of progress at iShares.com sustainable. Visit iShares.com to view a prospectus which includes investment objectives, risks, fees, expenses, and other information that you should read and consider carefully before investing. Risk includes principal loss. There is no guarantee any fund will exhibit positive or favorable sustainability characteristics prepared by BlackRock Investments, LLC. Stop. I'm now joined by Elizabeth Kashner, Director of Global Funds Research at FactSet, who's a leading provider of financial data and analytics. And Elizabeth heads up all of their ETF and mutual fund uh, classifications, along with conducting analysis on everything from fund costs to risks to uh, trading issues to performance. She really handles it all. And she's now on the line with me from Berkeley, California. Elizabeth, welcome back to the podcast. I'm so happy to be here, Nate. Good morning. All right. So you recently published two fantastic pieces. The first was titled H1 2022 ETF Flows, Steadfast, Brave, and Foolhardy. And then the second was titled Cheapest ETFs Make Bear Markets Less Painful. And I should note, these are both posted at insight.factset.com. Highly recommend everyone check these out. Uh, But Elizabeth, I noted this at the top. So obviously these are two different pieces, but they do share a common thread in that one of the reasons we're seeing these impressive flows into ETFs this year, despite the the, the markets, is because of ETFs generally low cost, right? Investors continue seeking out lower fee ETFs regardless. Now, I also mentioned, I feel like this uh, ETF fee story overall, of course, that's not a news story. But it's one that I do think we've maybe started to take for granted a little bit just because it's been, you know, such a story for so long. So I'm really looking forward to diving back into this topic. It's uh, one of my favorites. I I really do want to dig into the cost side here. However, let's start with uh, ETF flows. And I'm going to tee you up like this. So I'm going to give listeners a stat from your first piece, which I found simply mind boggling. So listen to this. First half 2022 ETF flows of $332 billion exceed the full year inflows for every year from 1993 to 2016. They also nearly match the full year inflows from 2018 and 2019. So let's start there. Talk about uh, ETF inflows overall thus far in uh, 2022. Pretty remarkable. You know, I I think given the retrenchment that we've seen in the global equity market and the U.S investment-grade fixed income, it's been extraordinary. And, uh, you know, I, I, I think it takes some courage to continue to buying uh, to buy as uh, asset values fall. And uh, we've seen that kind of courage in spades from ETF investors in the first half of the year. You know, I think you, you, you mentioned just the overall levels, uh, but I feel like the character has been a little bit different as well. So in the, in the 
boom years of 2020 and 2021, we saw quite a bit of performance chasing with uh, high-flying, top-performing ETFs attracting billions and billions of new investor dollars, uh, you know, growth-seeking and tactical. Um, but this year, we really, um, those dollars have gone away, and we're seeing very different behavior. Um, I shouldn't say they've gone away. They, they've mostly gone away, but they've also sort of shifted their attention a little bit. Uh, you know, certainly when, when you look at um, just the level of equity flows, you know, equity is really holding up the market right now for ETFs. Um, that we are, we're, we're on pace to have um, the second highest ever annual equity flows. Elizabeth, on the uh, equity ETF side, you mentioned the uh, sort of the changing composition of flows. Can you talk a little bit more uh, about that? Because I, I thought this was interesting in your piece and to me really highlighted the ability of ETFs to adapt to any market environment. So t- talk about some of the changes underneath the surface here. Oh, I'm happy to. So, you know, it's fact that we look at the equity market um, in three categories. We look at the, the size and style funds which uh, you know, chop up the universe by market cap size or by growth or value, but also include the broad total market core holdings, um, plus sector funds, and then uh, ETFs that are specifically geared towards uh, a high dividend yield. And, you know, in, in, the, in the FOMO years, in 2020 and 2021, we really saw an insurge into uh, sector funds. But uh, this year, that set of flows reversed. So, you know, in 2021, we saw $122 billion going into sector funds. This year, we had outflows, just $1.4 billion. So it's the change in direction that is really uh, significant there. Um, and then all of the slack in terms of market share was taken up in the other two categories. Um, size and style usually comprise about 80% of uh, the overall equity ETF market, but they got about 90% of the flows. And the remaining 10% went to those high dividend yield funds. Uh, You know, and I I should say, I'm not really clear about whether those investors were replacing fixed income positions with dividend yielding equities, or whether um, it felt like more of a defensive play. Yeah, it's a good point. I mean, you look at dividend ETFs, Last I checked, they're on pace to uh, break their annual record in terms of inflows and I, I think blow it away. And I do think there's been interest in more just defensive ETF strategies overall when you think about dividend ETFs and, and value and, and those sorts of things. What about uh, active ETFs? I know you noted that actively managed strategies have attracted excess inflows, and that's come at the expense of plain vanilla strategies. Uh, does that surprise you at all? Um, it does a little bit, Nate. Uh, because I think what we had been seeing was kind of a, a, a bloom is off the rose. You know, for, for years, we'd seen investor interest decline in the so-called smart beta product. Uh, we saw a big rush into ESG. ESG has also fallen off pace somewhat positive flows, but not quite, uh, not quite living up to their market share. And what's come in to take their place, I think, is an interest in active management. And, you know, we, we don't have any tools that really measure what investors are thinking when they press buy. But um, 
I, I do think that there are some who look to active management as a defensive strategy. You mentioned uh, ESG ETFs and, and how they've maybe lost their edge a little bit. That really caught my attention. And I think listeners know, you know, look, I've been, uh, we'll say, skeptical of ESG ETFs overall. But do you make anything of the fact that the flows have been a bit more muted this year compared to uh, past years in the ESG ETF space? Well, you know, I, I think there have been a number of different stories circulated about ESG, uh, but one of them has always been that ESG will give you market returns with below market risk. Uh, and frankly, that's never been true. Uh, and so, uh, you know, like other instances where risk-adjusted outperformance has been touted, uh, if it's not delivered, then investors kind of sour on the concept. You know, I also think we've seen a greater focus on uh, proxy voting and a more direct way that investors have the ability to influence corporate behavior. And so, you know, it may be that the uh, buyer's strike method of activism is on the wane. When you think about the pace of ETF flows overall this year, so we're on pace for the second best year ever behind last year. Uh, you look at the inflows into equity ETFs, again, tracking for the second highest uh, pace ever on, on stock ETFs. I'm, I'm curious, how big of a factor do you think taxable investors are here, where perhaps the market declines have uh, unlocked their ability to move out of, say, expensive, uh, underperforming mutual funds and other investment products and into ETFs? Do you think that's playing a, uh, a meaningful role in the ETF inflows this year? I, I think that it's been a really good opportunity. You know, we we do have a lot of uh, investors who are are really quite done with their expensive active products, but felt really trapped in there. And so, when you have a market reversal, there is the opportunity to get out with a you know no tax hit, or more realistically, probably less of a tax hit. You know, I think we also have to remember that global equity markets were down 17%, not 50%, not 80%, right? Where many of the longtime holders have their cost basis way back in the day. And so, you know, 17% reversal might not necessarily be enough for them. Uh, But for sure, there's been an opportunity for that. All right. Before we get to uh, fees, I really want to dig into the cost side of the equation. I have to ask you about leverage ETFs. And I was discussing this a little bit earlier with uh, Vetify's Tom Hendrickson. But my take from reading your piece was that uh, I'll say you were a bit puzzled with the sizable flows into leverage stock ETFs. Now, I, I guess I might argue that maybe this is just another example of a uh, trader sort of spinning the roulette wheel, right? They're literally gambling in a more volatile market environment. But do, do you want to explain what you uh, you found here on the leverage ETFs? I thought this, again, really jumped out at me in your piece. Well, sure. You know, just sort of going back to the theme that we we had a lot of performance chasing in 2020 and 2021, uh, there was a a way that you could understand it and saying, well, this asset is going up. People think the momentum will continue. They're just getting on the train. It's really hard to make that argument when you've got asset values in freefall and investors just keep plowing more money in. 
Uh, so th- this would comprise the foolhardy section <laughs> of, of my blog, right? And, and the, the market returns have been pretty terrible in the, the two ETFs that garnered the most inflows in the geared space, uh, TQQQ, which is 3X, the NASDAQ 100, and SOXL, which is uh, 3X uh, semiconductors. We, we had losses of 71%, 81%, over a half-year period, and uh, the asset-weighted returns were even worse, right? And this is at a time when the the Qs and the semis underperformed global equity markets by, you know, two to one, pretty much. And so it's really, when when you're coming off of of that FOMO context of momentum chasing on the upside, it's quite confounding to see momentum chasing on the downside. You know, I, I think I've been joking to myself that uh, people got punished in crypto and perhaps developed a taste for hot chili pepper on the tongue and figured <laughs> out, well, where else can I get punished? I mean, you look at the numbers here, they really are, they're staggering. So you mentioned TQQQ. Again, that's lost more than 70% in the first half of the year. Investors put $9 billion into that product. Uh, SOXL, the uh, the three times semiconductor bull you mentioned, again lost over eighty percent. Investors put five billion plus in, into that fund in the first half of the year. It's just amazing. And you had a stat too, which I think uh, bears repeating here. So leveraged ETFs overall attracted eight percent of year to date flows versus the five year average of a little over one percent. So you know, pretty interesting. And, and guess what, Elizabeth? Now we have single stock ETFs. <laughs> for uh, investors to gamble with. Yeah, and that's very <laughs> much a do-your-homework product. Uh, I, need, I need to say that geared ETFs are also very much a do-your-homework do your product, and one of the ways that they confound investors is by uh, returning exactly what they say they're going to do on a one-day basis, but over multiple periods of days, it's not possible to predict their returns because they reset their exposure every day. Yeah, and that point cannot be driven home enough. Uh, I try to drive it home at every opportunity on this podcast. What makes Capital Group's new suite of actively managed ETFs different? It's powered by a company with a seasoned global team, a history of navigating ups and downs, and everything behind it. Give your portfolio active management at the core with our new ETFs. Explore what's behind our new active ETFs at capitalgroup.com ETFs. American Funds Distributors, Inc., member FINRA. Um, okay, let's, uh, let's pivot and talk fees here. And you noted that despite everything that we, we just discussed, some, you know, some of these changes underneath the surface of ETF flows, the one thing that hasn't changed is the investor preference for lower-cost ETFs. You said this continues to be, quote, a powerful force. And again, I want to give a stat here from your piece, and then I'll just let you go wherever you want with this. So at mid-year, the asset-weighted average expense ratio for all U.S. ETFs was just 18 basis points. 18 basis points, which is almost hard to believe. And that's already down a, a little bit from the end of last year. So I'll just hand this over to you. Give us some highlights on the ETF fee side of the equation. Sure. Uh I'd be happy to. You know, I, I took a look at fees overall, and I also took a look at them broken down by asset class and by investment strategy. And long story short, some are starting from a higher level than others, but they're all moving in the same direction, which is to say downward. 
So, you know, overall, uh, we saw the, the, the asset weighted average expense ratio down three tenths of one basis point in a six month period. Um, that's actually a slightly slower drop than 2021. Um, the, you know, six tenths of the basis point annualized versus eight tenths. But there's no question on which direction it's going. Um, and I calculated that if you used asset levels from uh, the end of June, investors have saved $90 million just this year in fee compression. Can you talk specifically about active ETFs? I know you spent a lot of time digging in on, on these in particular, and you noted that the biggest change by far in terms of, of where fees have headed were on the actively managed equity ETF side which fell by like nine basis points in just six months. And you noted that if this trend were to continue through year end, actively managed equity ETFs could cost around just 31 basis points, which would be less than half of their cost at the end of 2020. I mean, that's a, a staggering statistic. Can you talk about what's been happening on the fee side and active ETFs? And then I'd also like to dig in a little bit just on the impact of mutual fund to ETF conversions. Yeah, I think we can't really ignore that factor at all. And uh, yes, the fee compression in um, active management and specifically active equity uh, has been staggering in its speed. You know, you you gave some of the headline statistics there. You know, I I think uh, it's really important to to take a a detailed look in this space and see what's going on. Um, You know, I took a look at one market segment um, is U.S. total market. So, you know, not chopping things up by size or style, not chopping things up by sector, just the whole U.S. equity market is your sandbox. Go for it. Um, and I took the asset weighted expense ratio of um, every ETF provider that is uh, competing in the space and I lined them up from cheap to expensive. And then I took a look at what were the natural flows over the half year um, and by natural, I mean excluding the mutual fund to ETF conversions since uh, those, those dollars came into the strategies over a period of years. They didn't come in on conversion day. You know, and when you look at that, you know, what you see is an extraordinary overweight on the far left, which is the cheap side of my chart. Um, you know, dimensional alone captured more than 50% of the natural flows into there, the excluding conversion flows. Uh, Dimensional has funds that actively managed ETFs in that space that cost 11 basis points, 12 basis points, and 19 basis points. Uh, So, you know, is it any wonder that the funds that cost 50 or 60 or 80 basis points are not able to compete? You know, just a, a couple of stats for you. Um, in this U.S. total market segment, ETFs that cost 16 basis points or less captured three out of every four dollars that came into uh, active management, whereas actively managed ETFs that cost 40 basis points or more took in just 11 percent of the active flows. So, you know, I, I, I think the message is pretty clear. If you want to compete, you better be in the under 20 crowd. Well, and you know what, what uh, I'm recalling here. So I don't know if you've read uh, Bloomberg's uh, Eric Balchunas's his, his book on Jack Bogle. Fantastic book, by the way, recommend everybody check that out. But, you know, he talks a lot about the real trend here being, you know, low cost versus high cost, not active versus passive. 
And I think we're starting to see that play out, right? Where you have these active strategies that are coming in at a lower price point. They're seeing flows. We, we talked a little bit earlier about the outsized flows into active products. And I think this gets back into the importance of cost, right? That ultimately cost is the the, the biggest driver here. It's not so much the active versus passive strategies. I guess, do, do you agree with that thought? I would say I agree with that partly. And, uh, you know, certainly Eric did a masterful job in his book. If we were on video, you'd see that it's literally sitting on the desktop uh, <laughs> over my left shoulder. Um, so uh, uh, kudos to Eric there. Um, you know, active management has always been a zero-sum game uh, because every active bet against the market has an existing and precisely opposite bet the other way. Um, and over any given time period, only one of the two bets will pay off and the other one won't. Um, but it's no question that uh, when you pile high fees on top of that active risk, it, outperformance becomes just that much more difficult. Uh, and I think that's why I, I titled this piece that uh, cheaper ETFs make bear markets a little bit less painful. You know, wh wh when you're waiting, whether you're waiting for outperformance or market performance or whatever it is, every day that you're waiting, you're paying table stakes, which are the, uh, the fees associated with your investment. The lower the table stakes, the higher your chances of success. I'm glad you mentioned that uh, th that your point on on just waiting during a, a bear market. Let, let me read the quote. I actually flagged this. So you said waiting for a market bounce feels less awful when it doesn't cost much fee wise. And I really like that because if you think about it, that is in stark contrast to how things were perceived, say, 10 or 15 years ago, where there was this idea that if you pay more for your investments, that's going to help uh, protect you from market volatility or, or market downturns. But, of course, we've done like a, a full 180 here. I, I guess, do you think that we could possibly flip back and maybe these fee trends reverse if the markets were to stay really volatile or perhaps we go down much more significantly from here? Or do you feel like this focus on fees is now set in stone moving forward, that this is a trend, it's going to remain intact, it's going to be tough to... Uh, to you know, sort of move uh, at all moving forward. So, Nate, I feel like at heart your question is, uh, will investors remain rational? Uh, because of what I explained earlier, the relentless math of active management, there will be some active management that outperforms and that earns those high fees, you know, whether it's by market timing and getting you in and out at the right time, whether it's by sector selection or security selection. Um, but you know, the ability of the average investor to identify those ahead of time, put money in at the right time, take money out at the right time, it's extraordinarily difficult. And I think, you know, in the financial crisis, a lot of investors learned that lesson very painfully that the, uh, the skilled managers that they had been looking to for protection didn't deliver. Uh, and that, you know, failure to deliver has been a constant. All you have to do is open any SPIVA study, any half year S&P active versus index to see that active mutual fund managers simply aren't able to beat their benchmarks over a long period of time. And so, you know, with that framework, it's, I, 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 I think the understanding in the investment community that uh, active risk is a real risk 
and that fees matter and they affect your returns forever is uh, is a huge determinant. That said, Nate, we saw so much irrationality with the chasing of the triple levered products that we talked about that, you know, if you're asking me, will uh, will rationality outweigh irrationality? I just can't say. <laughs> well, I uh, I actually tweeted out last night. If you remember the uh, the rock NFTs, the the rock JPEG. Uh, you, when you talk about rationality, a year ago, believe it or not, a picture of a rock was selling for uh, the cost of over a thousand ounces of gold. So, so maybe your point. We can't always uh, depend on investors uh, staying rational. Hopefully, uh, a little more rational moving forward. But I'll just add one thing to your point on. Uh, on focusing on cost, I always think back to the Morningstar study where they found that cost is the single biggest predictor of future returns of funds. And in other words, the lower the cost, the better chance you have of uh, of capturing the best returns in the market. And, you know, I think until the data shows us something different, you know, I'm always very data dependent that that cost will continue to be a factor, whether we're talking about Again, passive or active strategies. Cost is just uh, so important. But Elizabeth, before I let you go, any uh, any parting words on either ETF flows or, or costs? Um, you know, I think what you said earlier about the the uh, fee war maybe have things fallen out of the headlines, uh, but investor behavior not paying attention to the headlines so much. I really took heart from that for the first half of 2021. And I think that's the, the steadfast part of my title that, uh, you know, away from the headlines about performance, away from the flashy objects, away from the crypto space, uh, you know, away from thematics, away from ESG, what we continue to see is long-term faith in our capital markets in the most efficient and effective vehicles. So to all of those investors out there who are not making the headlines but are quietly behaving in a, a, a proactive, efficient manner, bravo. Well, I think that's the perfect ending point for this week, Elizabeth. Just great insight. Again, really enjoyed your two pieces. Uh, listeners, again, really recommend checking these out if you haven't already. But Elizabeth, thank you for joining me this week. Thank you so much, Nate. It's been a real pleasure. That was Elizabeth Kashner, Director of Global Funds Research at FactSet. That'll do it for this week's ETF Prime. I want to thank one of our sponsors, Pacer. If you would like to learn more about Pacer ETFs, you can visit www.paceretfs.com. All right, have I got a show for you next week. I'll be joined by Double Line's Jeffrey Sherman. He's Deputy Chief Investment Officer there. We're going to talk about the recent ETF entrance, which, again, another huge name entering the ETF space. And then I'll also be joined by Dimensional's Anthony Caruso, who will talk about the growth of their ETF business and everything they have in store moving forward. Until then, have a great week, everyone. <laughs>